We are in a series of messages that we're calling Next Steps. Um, we've talked about several next steps in the Christian life. Everything we do in life, Christian or not, is step by step. Very little happens in leaps and bounds. And uh, we've talked about several next steps. Now today, I'm going to defy a principle of preaching. Uh, I've been teaching preaching since 2003. I teach it on Monday nights in Westchester now. I've got 11 students in a class. And I tell them not to do what I'm getting ready to do today, okay? But uh, I think uh, because I've been here long enough and I think that you're good listeners, you'll be able to deal with it because I'm going to preach on two separate steps. What we try to do in preaching is have one concept that we elaborate on for X amount of minutes and then you go home with that one thing to chew on. Today I'm giving you two different concepts and I'm doing that because I don't want the message series to go away into April. Uh, but, uh, uh, so I think you can hang in there even though it's not the very best way uh, to preach. Uh, one of the important things, and all of these are important, and I think sometimes, sometimes I say this is the most important, or I don't know what's most important, but it's absolutely crucial that you understand uh, as a Christian that your identity lies in Christ. It, that's, it's just unbelievably important. I didn't get that for probably the first 15 years of my Christian life. And, and so I think my maturity was slowed a little because of that. I had accountability brother that was talking to me about that and giving me a book by Neil Anderson on identity in Christ. And I understood it and kind of grasped the truth that was there, but it never really clicked for me how important this was. And it did years uh, later because identity determines behavior. Now that's a, that's a huge, huge concept. There's very little in the Bible about how you become a Christian. There obviously is some, but if you had a magic uh, marker or, or a highlighter and you were going through and highlight the verses that have to do with how you become a Christian and then highlight with another color the verses that have to do with now that you are a Christian, this is how you are to behave, it'd be full of behavior verses. And, and identity determines behavior. Think about it. Every time that someone tells a lie, or let's just make it personal, every time that I told a lie or that you told a lie, probably the reason for that lie was my identity lied in the person I was talking to, and I didn't want to look bad, or I wanted to look really good in front of that person, and my identity lied more in that person than it did in my Heavenly Father, who wants me to speak truth. I've used this example time and time again. There was somewhere last night in, in Dayton that a little 16-year-old girl lost her virginity to an older guy, not because she really wanted to lose her virginity, but because her identity was in him and what he thought of her. Or it could be said that some guy lost his virginity last night because he had to be cool in front of all the guys because the guys were ribbing him that he hadn't lost his virginity yet. Because, like for most of us at teenagers, our identity is in our peers. Identity determines behavior. And for that reason, it's a crucial, crucial concept in the Christian life. I've told you before on my Facebook page, I have my name, and then I have underneath that, I have Christian, I have husband, I have father, 
I have son. My mom's still alive, so I have a, I'm, I'm still a son. I'm a brother. And then I have a pat, and then I, I put pastor. Then I said underneath it, I said, but I have hard trouble keeping him in that order. Like we all do. Bible says we are renewed, Romans chapter 12, we are renewed by, uh, we are transformed, excuse me, by the renewing of our minds. Don't you wish God come along with a holy baseball bat and just knock sense into us? Okay? But we are renewed as our mind changes, as we start to think differently, as we take out the stinking thinking and put in godly thinking, and that's a lifelong process of doing that. And our identity is one of the difficult ways to change about who we are. My identity for many years was as a basketball coach, and my identity was in how good our basketball team was doing. So you can imagine throughout a basketball season how my self-esteem and my self-worth was, and especially where you confound it was during a losing basketball season. If my identity, if my self-worth, if my self-esteem was based in the fact that if my team was winning or not, and if my team wasn't winning, you can imagine where my self-esteem was. But the Bible says in so many places, our first and foremost identity is that we are a child of God, a child of the living God. Our first and foremost, that if you are a Christian here today, if you're not a Christian, you're not a child of God. That, that the world seems to think that. Well, we're all children of God. No, if we've uh, been born again, if we've been adopted into his family, we're a child of God. Uh, you also, if you're a Christian today, you've been forgiven. Um, a, a large part of counseling that goes on, whether it's my pastoral counseling or whether it's something that goes on in crosswalk counseling or any counseling, agents, uh, any counseling agencies, secular or Christian, are about stuff that happened in the past. Bible says I'm forgiven. Bible says I'm forgiven. And that's a huge part of who I am in Jesus Christ. I've already said Romans 8 tells you that we are adopted into his family. Adoption means there's been a choice. There's intentionality going on with that. Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 31 that I'm never alone. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And no matter where I am and what I'm doing, I am not alone. This is not me up here with just what I prepared for this sermon. This is God with me, inspiring, putting things in my mind, even as I preach, taking things out that don't need to be said. And the same thing goes for all of us. We are never alone. We may feel like we're alone. That's why I didn't talk to somebody just this week who lives by their feelings. That's why you can't live by your feelings because your feelings are up and down and all over the place. I live by the truth. Whether I feel like it or not, I'm never alone. In a verse that's a, a very important to me because I didn't become a Christian till later in life and I had a whole lot of water under the bridge and a lot of sin that God had to forgive. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. That's what the verse says. Now I can continue to go through and tell you about 
what the Bible says our identity is. And I preach series on that, and I go to it sometimes in, in different messages. But I want to talk about one specific component of our identity that is just as important as all the rest of them. I want you to know tonight that the Bible says that you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. An ambassador is a messenger. An ambassador is one who represents another person in another country. And the Bible talks about many times how we are foreigners in this world. That this world is not our home. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 18 is where this is found in Scripture. All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us... <clears throat> the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ ambassadors. And this is a scary part. As though God were making his appeal through us. Can you imagine that? As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, Paul says. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Hebrews chapter 13 talks about this fact that we're kind of in a foreign country. We're kind of not at home, and that's kind of the way it is if you're an ambassador to Spain or if you're an uh, ambassador to Turkey or wherever it may be. Hebrews 13 says, For we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for that city. That's why we're not at home here. That's why this world many times feels foreign to you because the Bible does call you aliens in this world. You're foreigners in this world if you're a Christian because you're looking for a city that's yet to come. Your home is not here. Elsewhere, another part of your identity is the Bible says your citizenship is in heaven. So if you feel like this world is just doesn't fit you and you feel more and more out of place, yeah, you're a foreigner. You're not a citizen of the United States course you are but you're not spiritually you're a citizen of heaven that's why john chapter 17 verses 15 through 18 i'm not going to read them all but i'll just suffice it to say we are in the world but we're not of the world so if i'm an ambassador to spain i have been sent to spain to represent the united states of america in spain i'm in spain but i'm an american yeah i'll probably eat more uh, Spanish food than I have ever, but I probably won't adopt all the customs and, and cultures and traditions. I'll probably keep a whole lot of what we do as Americans. I'm in Spain, but I'm not of Spain. I'm just, if it was me, I may be the ambassador to Spain, but I'm just an old boy from 425 Wood Street, Maysville, Kentucky. That's, that's where my home is. As Christians, our home is not here, our home is in heaven. We're in the world, and we're subject to everything that's in the world, good and bad. We're subject to that, but we don't have to be of the world. Unbelievably important concept. I don't have to be of the world. This worldly type of thinking and living, John talks about it in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2, 16, he writes, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, 
It comes from the world. So all, this stuff that you see out here that you feel so alienated from, that feels foreign to you, it's not from the Father. It's, it's from the world. Now many of you won't remember back to 2016 when they were going through the Republican presidential primary and there was eight or nine candidates on the debate stage and then candidate Trump was one of those and, and um, there, was, there, was, there, was, there were several of them. Ted Cruz was running, Rand Paul was running, I can't remember all who was running. One person that was running that, that <coughs> dropped, <coughs> excuse me, dropped out pretty soon was John Huntsman and actually I feel, felt like he was a pretty good candidate and he was the governor of Utah but he didn't have any support and he jumped he, he dropped out pretty soon well when candidate Trump was elected president he appointed John Huntsman to be ambassador to Russia now that's a fascinating spiritual illustration if you would think of that because you could kind of say that when when candidate Trump and candidate Huntsman and, and candidate Cruz and candidate Paul and, and candidate Bush were all on the platform there. You could say and they were competitors, certainly, and it's a little strong, but you could say they, they were enemies. And God says that, that, believe it or not, God says before we're saved, we're enemies of his. But we have been reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. And so Trump and Huntsman were kind of enemies, but now uh, Trump is the president and he appoints one who was once an enemy to be an ambassador to another foreign country that, to represent him. It's kind of close to what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 says. And, and, and in that passage it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have now been brought near. You have been reconciled. You have been brought near. And the verse again that we're launching from, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, be reconciled. Be reconciled to God. Friends, this ambassadorship is really, really important. You're not called to be a sheriff and be a sheriff of other people's sins. You're not called to be a judge of other people's lives. You're not called to be the judge of other people's lives. You're not called to police other people's lives and other people's sins. You're not even called to convert other people. The Holy Spirit does the converting. You're called to represent him. And many times that representation is an opening of the mouth. We implore you as ambassadors, be reconciled to God. <laughs> Important part of your identity, you represent him the same way that the ambassador to Portugal represents President Biden in Portugal. We represent him. And so that's why a verse like Philippians 1.27 is very important to us because it says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. And I would assume ambassadors to different countries understand their responsibility to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the United States of America. And it's the same way with our ambassador 
shift. Just before Jesus was going to the cross, he had the disciples together. And I'm pausing now because I can't remember where John 20 is in Scripture. It could have been after Jesus was resurrected. I can't remember. But he came to his disciples and said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Wow. You are a sent person. You are a sent person. Well, Mark, we get that you, you're called, and you know, you're, you're a paid religious guy and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, you may not be sent in the exact way that I'm sent, but in no lesser way, you still are a sent person. And so whether you're young or whether you're old, as you go into your workplace, that's not, that's not, that's not just a place where you provide for your family. Of course, it is a place where you provide for your family. But it is a place where you have been sent. And if you don't grab your ambassadorship, if you don't take the next step toward ambassadorship, you'll never grasp Jesus' words that said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You have to have a sense of sentness, if I can make up a word. Young people who are in school, whether it's, high school, whether it's junior high, high school, or college, or wherever it may be, you're not just there to learn. Of course you're there to learn. You're not there just to get your degree. Of course you're there to get your degree. But you're sent you're walking the halls for a reason. There should be a sense of purpose and sentness if we understand this. If you truly claim your ambassador. Well, what does that mean, Mark? Does that mean that I just stand in the hallway and pass out tracks? I'm not saying that at all. You have to work out your sentness. You have to work out how you are sent. You have to work out your ambassadorship. You are there to represent another. Tremendous part of identity. And a huge, huge next step. Identity determines behavior. People that, you know, we, we preachers can say people that never volunteer for stuff, well, they're just, you know, they're just lazy. They don't want to do anything. No, they're probably, their self-worth is not high enough to think they could actually do it. They haven't claimed their ambassadorship. Oh, I, I could never do that. I, their self-worth, their self-esteem is not high enough to claim their ambassadorship, to claim their sentence. The work hasn't been done in the brain yet. They haven't taken God's word for what it is and claim the fact that he calls us all, if we're new creations, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if we're new creations, 2 Corinthians 5.17, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, therefore you're our Christ ambassador, as though God were making his appeal through you. <laughs> it's big time stuff here, friend. 
The churches that make impact in their community are churches that understand they are sent to their community. Are churches that understand and are made up of a bunch of people that sense and grab, as scary as it may be, their ambassadorship. There's lots to identity. And, and, and I could give you a whole list of what the Bible says you are. The Bible says you're salt and light. I mean, I could go on and on and give you a list. You can Google it of what the Bible says about you. And the, and, and the Christian life is pretty much a lifelong process of being transformed by the renewal of our mind, believing all of that stuff that the Bible says you are. Maxie Dunham was my seminary president. <laughs> I've told you this before. And he said, uh, you've got to believe what the Bible says about you, no matter how good it is. Most preachers are up here trying to make you feel so bad, you know, to believe that you're really a sinner and all that. And there's truth, uh, there's obviously truth to that. But Dr. Dunn says, you, you've got to believe what the Bible says about you, no matter how good it is. All right, let, now, let me shift gears and do what I'm not supposed to do as a preacher. I'm going to talk about something now that doesn't have a whole lot to do with identity. So I'm kind of moving you to another subject and that's why it's not good because you've been flowing with that and you're grasping that and now I'm going to force you to grasp something else and this, I break a rule of communication here but I think you can stay with me. Because the next step that you have to take, not only do we need to take all the steps we've talked about before for like since the first year, we also need to take the next step of baptism. Now, I know I'm talking to a lot of people that have been baptized. But I'm talking to people that haven't as well. The Bible assumes that if you're a Christian, you will take the next step of baptism. The Bible assumes that. Assumes that. And now, what is baptism? Well, there's a whole lot of ways that we can explain it. Different traditions of the Christian faith explain it in different ways. I like to think of it this way. On November 18th, 1995, Sue and I were married at Sterling First Church of the Nazarene in Sterling, Illinois. Look how skinny we were. And the gentleman that preached the revival here three or four months ago, Kim Smith, is the guy that married us. On that day, we did what all you that are married have done. We stood before family and friends, and we proclaimed through vows and I do's and all of that our commitment to one another. And then toward the end of the ceremony, pastor looks at both of us and says do you have rings he says like that because you don't have to have a ring to get married 
You don't have to have a ring to get married. I'm sure lots of people have been so poor when they got married they couldn't afford a ring. He said, do you have rings? And so obviously 99 out of 100 couples will say yes. And then we exchange rings with words that go along with that. And so this ring is a symbol that I've made a commitment to another. That's all that it is. It's a, it's a public symbol. Public like I wear it here and anybody that wants to glance down there can see it. It's a public symbol. This ring doesn't say anything about our marriage. Our marriage could be lousy, but I still got a ring on. This marriage doesn't say we got a good marriage, we got a great marriage, we got a mediocre marriage. It doesn't say anything about that. It just says, I'm married. It's a symbol. It's an external sign of an inward commitment. It's an external sign of an inward commitment. And baptism is something like the wedding band of our faith. It's a public profession. Public. Just like I wear this publicly. I don't, don't hide it. I don't go around like this. And I, I don't stick, leave this hand in my pocket all the time. It's public. Baptism is a public profession of something that has happened on the inside of you. One of my seminary profs, and I can't remember who it was or I'd give him credit for it, but he says that baptism is an, uh, an outward sign of inward grace. That's good. That's really good. An outward sign of inward grace. This wedding band is an outward sign of an internal commitment that Sue and I have made to one another. And for us as Christians, baptism is something like, this illustration falls apart in some areas, but it's something like a wedding band of our faith. We follow Jesus. Our mission statement of our church is to make Christ-like disciples in the nations. That's the mission statement of the Church of the Nazarene, to make Christ-like. And if we are to be Christ-like, it means we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus was baptized. He came up to John, and John was baptizing in the Jordan, and John says, well, well, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, I, I must do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, I'm not 100% sure I know what that means. But if, but if baptism is important to Jesus... If baptism is important enough for the Son of God to do it, why would it not be important enough for us to do it? Matthew chapter 3. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. Why do we baptize by immersion? Because of that verse right there. Why is there a whole, a whole denomination of people that only baptize by immersion? We, as the Church of Nazarene, we baptize by immersion and we do sprinkling and we do pouring. I, I, I always try to guide people toward immersion. But I, I wouldn't make a crippled 87-year-old lady get in the baptismal tank. I'd pour to the glory of God. <laughs> but for, if you're able, I guide you to the baptismal tank because of that verse. He came up and out of the water. 
At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and he heard a voice from heaven that said, This is my Son, who I love. In him I am well pleased. Over two dozen people in the New Testament are mentioned as being baptized. It is not listed as a suggestion. It is assumed. Mark chapter 16, a lot of people have taken this, these verses, this verse and taken it out of the context of all the New Testament and really all the Bible and says, well, that means you've got to be baptized to be saved. You can't take one verse of Scripture and make a theology out of it. You're, you're in dangerous territory if you do that. You've got to interpret all of God's Word and see where this verse falls in the entirety of God's Word. And this is just, it's just like it's assumed. Whoever is saved and is baptized. What you do after you got saved? You got baptized. It was just assumed. It was just assumed. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Mark chapter 16. What a marvelous symbol of uh, being a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. What a marvelous symbol. As, as, as I go under the water and as I rise up in newness of life, cleansed, washed in newness of life. What a marvelous symbol that is of what God has done for me. A, 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 a human way to understand what we as humans don't totally understand what God has done for us. And no matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert, no matter if you're timid or if you're bold, if you're quiet or if you're bolsterous, it doesn't make any difference. The call is to believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. There's an old-timey tradition of that you would put on all white before you were baptized. And I know what a lot of you are thinking. It was just the robe you went in that way. But initially, it was put in all white and then put on your old tattered clothes over top of that. And once you came out of the water, you took off those old tattered clothes and you walked out of that water in white. Now, that's good. That's good symbolism. It doesn't mean it's 100% going to happen in the person's life, but it's a symbol. It's an illustration of what happens on why it is that we do baptism. It's a public declaration of a private commitment. It's a public declaration of a private commitment. You've heard some people say this. I have too. Well, my faith is a private thing. Can I tell you? That's not a biblical concept. My faith is really personal. It's a private thing. Your, your grandmother may have taught you that. Your mom and dad didn't teach you that. May have taught you that. The Bible didn't teach you that. That's folklore. That's human tradition that's been passed down. A private faith 
It's got to be a personal faith. You've got to come yourself individually. It's a different thing. Personal and private, it's a different thing. It's got to be personal. He's my personal Savior. I'm not saved because he's my dad's Savior. It's a personal thing, but it's not a private thing. Private faith is not a biblical concept. I'm trying to tell you that a next step, that a next step for some of you, not for all of you, because I'm, I'm looking at a lot of people here that have been baptized, but I'm also looking at some people that haven't. And I have to say, if you haven't, why have you not? It's assumed. It's assumed. I was talking with a friend just the other night that confessed to me. I appreciate his honesty. I appreciate his honesty. But he confessed to me what a lot of you wouldn't confess. He confessed to me that he was afraid of water. I get that. I was scared to death of water until I was 13. My dad play, paid John Ferrace $30 to teach me to swim. Six lessons at Southland Swimming Pool in Lexington, Kentucky. My dad to the day he died said it was the best $30 he ever spent in his life. <laughs> and John Ferrace helped to conquer my fear of water. But I understand fear of water. But to not be baptized because of a fear of water is a trust issue. Can I tell you, there's going to be a whole lot of things in your Christian life that are a heck of a lot more difficult to do than being held underwater for a half a second and being pulled up. And if you can't trust God with that, you're going to have difficulty trusting God with the myriad of things that are going to happen in the rest of your Christian life. The old song most of you have heard, and our younger people may not be as familiar with it as some of us old guys are, but uh, you, most of you remember the old hymn, I've Decided to Follow Jesus. That, the story behind that is that um, those words were actually uttered by a Christian convert. There was a great revival that went on in, in Wales a hundred years ago, and, and some missionaries from, that were converted from Wales went to India among the Buddhist and Hindu people in India to, to uh, spread the Christian gospel. And back then in India, and even sometimes now in India, there are tribes that are not real civilized. And so a couple of Christian missionaries went in, uh, excuse me, a Christian missionary and his family went in to India and um, had some success. There were some converts, and the chief of the tribe didn't like it very much. Because Hinduism and Buddhism is, Hindu, Buddhism is kind of like your own God, and Hinduism is you can there can be many gods, and so it was it was a new kind of teaching that the chief did not like at all, and so he called the new Christian to him, the the, the new convert, and said that he must recant. And that new converse, convert said in his own language, obviously said, "I have decided to follow Jesus." 
And so the, the ch tribal chief didn't take that very well and said, um, if you don't recant, I'm going to call a couple of my arch archers, his military men, bow and arrow have been their biggest weapon back then, and I'm going to kill your two kids. And the new convert's response was, though none go with me, still I will follow. And so the archers did their job. And then the, said the same thing about his wife, you know, if, if you don't, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and the same thing happened to his wife. And so the Indian chief was just absolutely livid and, um, said, I'm going to kill you. And he said, uh, uh, I have decided. Now, none of us are going to, and, and, and then obviously he was martyred. Now, 99.9% .9 of the people in the world will not be called to be martyrs. We may be called to stand for Jesus in ways, but we won't be called to martyr, be martyred. Matthew 10, 32 uh, Jesus said, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. That doesn't mean that we should go out and look to be persecuted. We should go out and look to be martyred. That doesn't mean that at all. It means that we should just take a stand for our faith. What happens will happen on taking a stand for our faith. What happens will happen. But the reality of it is that 99.9 .9 of us are not going to be martyred for our faith in a so-called Christian country. Whoever acknowledges me before others, and that's what you do. It's, excuse me, that's one of the ways you do that is through the baptismal tank. So, uh, as I leave you here, I know I'm talking to the choir on some of this because I know a lot of you have been baptized. But there's some of you that haven't. There's some of you that haven't. And I really strongly urge you that if you haven't, that is the most obvious next step for you in your faith. The most obvious next step for you in your faith. Who knows what your faith and your public profession will do in someone else's life out here? Who knows that? Who knows what your public profession will do in the lives of friends and family that may come to see you baptized? Who knows what God could do with that? It's a way to witness. And that's going to happen on March the 6th. On March the 6th, we'll be baptizing. And what does it mean? Who's a candidate for baptism? You don't get baptized because your wife wants you to or your husband wants you to. I heard of a husband one time that got baptized because he wanted to marry the girl, and the girl wasn't going to marry somebody if he wasn't a Christian, so he got baptized. My friends, that is poor theology. <laughs> poor theology. You, you are baptized because something's happened to you on the inside. And you may not be able to put total words to it, but it's something like, dying to your old life and rising to newness of life. It's something like that.
So one of the reasons that we close every one of our service at the table is, is to remind everybody that the, the, the table is the foundation of our faith. Our, 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 the death of Jesus Christ is the foundation. The, the Hebrews calls it the, the elementary things of our faith. It's, it's, it's where we start. It's where we, get, uh, where we build on top of. If you don't have the foundation, your whole building will, will fall. But it's the start. You have to have a solid foundation so no one gets baptized unless they, can, unless they make a public profession of faith. I have them write out a little testimony that a, I or a friend or family will read before they're baptized. It's no, no big deal. It's just three paragraphs, who I used to be, who I am now, and what God is doing in my life. And it starts with what we celebrate at the end of all of our services. That faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That his bodily death, his blood that was shed, paid the penalty for my sin. I can't pay it. I can't do enough good things to, do, to pay it. I can't work hard enough to pay it. I believe that Jesus paid it for me. If you believe that, not up here. I believed it up here for 34 years. I really did. But this is a really difficult 18 inches. It's a long, long road. So you have to believe it down here. If you believe it down here, you'll start centering your life around it. So our servers are coming to the table, and we're going to once again be reminded of what we do or the most important thing that we talk about as a church, and that's be reconciled to God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You may want to come to the tables this morning. You may want to come and pray at the altar and take one of the vials that we have here. You may want to receive it in your pews. That's absolutely your call. But let's contemplate the seriousness of what we're talking about here. Whether you're thinking about your ambassadorship or whether you're thinking about the next step of baptism, let God work in these next few minutes.